invite you to grab a Bible and open it up to the book of Nahum with me. You know, Nahum is one of the minor prophets. There are 12 out of the 66 books in the Bible. We categorize 12 of them as minor prophets. And many people have not even read the minor prophets. They've never heard a sermon on it. They think that they are old and boring. Let me just ask everybody who's been here the last couple of nights. Has the book of Nahum been boring? No, no. Um, is what, has it been hard to understand or at, sometimes has it been all too clear perhaps, right? Um, so I just think hopefully what we can do here at our church is we can take away some of the negative stigma attached to these texts and we can see that this is God speaking to us. And so over the three nights we've been trying to work our way through Nahum chapter 1, page 782, if you got one of our Bibles. And not only are we here to study the minor prophets and to learn and grow in our knowledge of God, but we are also here hopefully to see people get saved. Anybody want to see any one get saved here this week at church. That's what we're going for. That would be an awakening of their soul to a new life in Jesus Christ. And last night, I was tired here. It had been a long day, and I was walking back in here to get something, and there was a couple of people in the back, and they were talking. It was an hour and a half after the service had ended, and they were still sitting in their seats talking. And I thought, this is the kind of conversation I want to be a part of. And we had somebody here in this room last night uh, ask God to give them a new life in Jesus Christ. Uh, so it's very exciting. It is a very exciting evening. Uh, one of the families that go to our church, Brad and Laura Smith, they had a baby last night. And someone else was born again right here in this room last night. So we praise the Lord for that good news. And tonight, the passage we're going to look at is Nahum chapter 1, verses 8 to 15. So I would ask you to just follow along as I read our text for this evening to conclude this chapter. Follow along with me. You remember the double-double verse of Nahum 1-7, the Lord is good. We did that one last night. So pick it up with me in verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So we're picking up right where we left off the last couple of nights. 
with a pretty intense message coming across here in the oracle, uh, that is the book of Nahum, this burdensome word that Nahum writes out that's for the people of Nineveh. And Nineveh is the capital city of which nation? Shout it out if you know. Assyria, right? Well, here we're right back to what's going to happen to Assyria, to Nineveh, verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Okay? So what we've seen a lot this week so far, and our verse 8 picks it right back up there. There's going to be a flood. It's going to make an end of the adversaries. The enemies are going into darkness. We're going to wipe out. We're going to judge. We're going to destroy. There is a God of vengeance, as it said in verse 2. So we've been looking at the bad news. And the bad news is sinners will not be spared. Let's get that down for point number one. The bad news is sinners will not be spared. There is going to be judgment for people who continue in sin. For people who reject salvation in Jesus Christ, they will be judged by God. And Nineveh is about to experience that judgment from God. If you continue in sin and and God sends his warnings and God tells you to turn, and if you do not repent of your sin, God will not relent of his disaster and he will judge you. This is a, a harsh and terrible truth that we must accept and come to grips with, that there is bad news that sinners will not be spared. And this is kind of the timeline that we've seen. Let's just review the timeline that we've seen for the nation of Assyria. We saw that because Jonah, the prophet, got sent to Nineveh, even though he didn't want to go, God made sure he got there. There was a great revival in the capital city of Nineveh. In fact, God even used Assyria to invade Israel in 702 22 BC, that's what we're studying now in Hosea. God is saying, this is on Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Hosea, that because the people of Israel aren't loving God, they're going to be judged. Who judges Israel? Well, it's the nation of Assyria. That's who wipes them out. But now in the book of Nahum, we see that judgment is coming and there's going to be a complete end. They are going to be into darkness. There is a final and terrible judgment that is coming upon this people. And we've been comparing what's going on here in Nahum in the country of Assyria with what's happening in our nation of America. And we have seen that we had a great awakening, a great time of revival with men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield even before the foundation of our nation. But now we have seen that we have been turning away from God. And we saw that clearly in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 and following that we have turned into sin, into evolution, into sexual freedom, into same-sex marriage being legal in our land. And therefore, what is do we have good news for America? Or do we have judgment that is coming upon us here in America? And we see that here in Nineveh, in Assyria, there was judgment coming. Now there's a question in verse 9, back in Nahum 1 verse 9. There's a question, what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. So that's a theme here. There, uh, one thing that the Assyrians were known for, they were known for being a very violent people. And they had their one God. They were polytheistic. They worshiped many idols, many false gods, but Asher was their one main God. 
And the Assyrians were a violent people who loved to not only conquer other nations, they loved to eliminate other nations from existence so that there would be no remembrance of them, no passing down of them. And now it's like what goes around, what Assyria has done to other nations is now going to come around and happen to them. And so it's clear, trouble will not rise up a second time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe you out with such a complete end that you're not going to rise up again. And then we start getting these pictures here. They're like entangled thorns. They're like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like stubble fully dried. They're like these California uh, wilderness areas that can just catch fire so quickly and spread so quickly. That's what it's going to be like. And then in verse 11, a very interesting line here. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. So now it seems like we're referring to someone specific who had this plot against the Lord. It's like God revived your nation, God used your nation, but then your nation turned against God. And there was one counselor, a worthless counselor, who even implied as much. And I think that verse 11 here is referring to a specific man uh, called Rabshakeh. And I want you to go to Isaiah 36 with me. Grab your Bible and turn over to Isaiah 36 here in the middle of the prophet Isaiah, we have some historical passages. And he tells a story of what happened to the southern kingdom of Judah. We know that Assyria comes and wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel. But they also came and attacked the southern kingdom of Judah. And King Hezekiah was the king of Judah and Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. And he came against King Hezekiah. And he sent out this counselor... This, this uh, representative of Assyria named Rabshakeh. And, uh, and you can see in Isaiah 36 verse 4, And uh, Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Okay, So he's starting to trash talk them, and he's trash talking specifically after what do you guys trust in that's going to somehow save you from us coming in and wiping you guys out. Now, some of the people that Rabshakeh is talking to, they're at the city wall of Jerusalem. Some of these guys, you can see in verse 11, Eliakim, Shebna, Joah, they say to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand. He's speaking in the language of the Jews, and everybody can understand what he's saying. And the people are freaking out as this guy's trash-talking. So they're saying, hey, let's have this conversation in Aramaic. And here's Rabshakeh's response, verse 13. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the great the king of Assyria. And he's saying this so everybody in Jerusalem or many of the people can hear him. He's going to incite panic. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, and he goes on from there. But did you notice that he said specifically in verse 15, do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. So here's his worthless counsel, where he is trying to help the people of Jerusalem see that trusting in the Lord will not save them, will not deliver them. Don't trust in the Lord, he can't rescue you. Now, go to chapter 37, verse 1. Chapter 37, verse 1. 
As soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. So he's clearly freaking out about the message. Good thing there's the prophet Isaiah who tells him to not be afraid. In verse 6, he says, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. And he's saying, you don't need to fear. And uh, eventually Hezekiah prays this. Go down to chapter 37, verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God So he is trusting in the Lord. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands. They're wiping out everybody else. And they've cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, Save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. That's the kind of thing we need a king praying right there. We need a president praying those kinds of things right there. We need people in America praying that the only one who can save us now is not Donald Trump. It's not Hillary Clinton. It's not any man or any woman. Only the Lord can deliver us at this point. And he prays that, and the Lord hears him, and the Lord is pleased with his prayer and answers his prayer. Go down to verse 36, and here's how the story ends. And verse 36 of chapter 37, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000. So they had a lot of soldiers. And the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 soldiers in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. And so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Does it sound like it's a good idea to trust the Lord right there? So this is why now when Nineveh came against Judah, and not only did they come against Judah, but they specifically said to Judah, don't trust in the Lord Yahweh, the one who is the self-sufficient God. Don't trust in him to save you. See, that was worthless counsel. That's where you cross the line. That's where you have now started speaking against God. You're not acknowledging him as God anymore, and you are denying him. You are suppressing the truth about him in your unrighteousness. That will not be tolerated. You will be judged. And so I think when we go back to Nahum now, turn back there with me, Nahum chapter 1, and it starts talking about a worthless counselor. I think there's a strong case that who that's referring to is Rabshakeh and his worthless counsel to the people of Israel not to trust in the Lord, which God not only judged them for there while they were battling against Jerusalem, but now it says they're going to be at a complete end. Now at this point, here in verse 12 of Nahum 1, we start to realize that there are two different audiences that are being addressed in this chapter. So far, it's been all about Nineveh, capital city of Assyria. But look what it says here in verse 12. Thus says the Lord. Almost like we're starting a new section. Thus says the Lord. Though they, notice now we're talking about a a they. They are at full strength and many. They will be cut down and pass away. That sounds like we're talking about Assyria. But notice here, we change our tense. Though I have afflicted you. 
I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. So now, as we're talking through here, there's a they and a you. So it seems like we're going back and forth between two different audiences. Now in verse 14, it says, the Lord has given a commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. So now it seems like we're back to talking about Assyria. No more shall your name be perpetuated. We are going to wipe out the name of Assyria and your gods. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image. Basically, I'm going to decapitate your god and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. And Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he was killed there while he was worshiping his God. But then it says this, verse 15. This is the key verse we're going to focus in on. Look at it with me. It says, behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news. All of a sudden, we've got good news here in Nahum, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, oh, who are we talking to here? Keep your feasts, oh, who? Judah. Judah, The people of uh, God that live in Jerusalem. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now, this is interesting. And so the you earlier in verses 12 and 13, the ones who were afflicted, the ones who had this yoke and these bonds that were going to be broken off and burst apart is now revealed that we're not only telling Assyria they're going to be judged, but we're telling Judah good news. I mean, you can imagine if you're in Jerusalem, let's say you're one of the watchmen of Jerusalem. You're one of the guys who stands on the wall and you just look out looking for any enemy that might come. Man, when the Assyrian army came around you, when Rabshakeh came up and started trash talking against God, you saw all of that. Man, you're thinking, man, that army's going to come back and they're going to wipe us out. Yeah, they went back to Assyria, but they're going to retool. They're going to get things together. And you're probably watching, and you're getting ready for the bad news of the Assyrian army coming to finish the job and to wipe you out. But no, all of a sudden, you get this book of Nahum. You get this good news that Assyria is going to be at a complete end. Their gods are going to be wiped out, and they're never coming back. They're not going to rise up a second time. And it's like, share the good news, Judah. Assyria's judgment is great news for God's people because now Assyria is not going to come and wipe them out. And so if you were a watchman, and I'm talking about way back in the day, the guy who stands on the city wall, we're talking about not only before the internet, before even telephones, we're talking about before the Pony Express. You know what I mean? We're going way back here. If you wanted to get a message from one place to another place, how did you get that message there? You sent a messenger, and what did that messenger do? Ran as fast as his two legs would carry him. And so if you're a watchman, and you start seeing this little, this little thing moving off in the distance, and it's kicking up dust, and it's coming towards you, you might start shouting at the fellow watchman. You might start shouting at the people down below. Hey, we got news coming, and he's coming in hot. He's coming in fast. Looks like good news coming to Jerusalem. That's the idea here. How beautiful are the feet. Look at the feet. Look at that guy running. Here he comes on the mountains. Here he comes, and he's bringing good news. Gather everybody together. Here comes the messenger. Assyria is going down, my friends. Good news day in Judah. That's the idea. After the bad news comes some good news. Now, one of the greatest examples of this kind of messenger 
where somebody would run with, with the message is this guy named Pheidippides. Has anybody heard this legend before at the Battle of Marathon? Have you heard this one before? This is where the marathon supposedly comes from. Who's ever ran a marathon before? I do not envy you at all. You know what I mean? Like the rest of us are like, what were you thinking? You know what I mean? Like the Battle of Marathon happened in the nation of Greece. And when they won victory, which they did not think they were going to win, this guy Pheidippides took off from the Battle of Marathon and he ran to Athens. And he ran into the room where the leaders of the Greek people were. And he shouted out, Neni Kekamen is what he shouted out. Neni Kekamen which is in Greek, we have won. And then he fell over in a moment of triumph and he gave the good news and he gave the message and then he fell over and died right there. So when your friend says, hey, let's go run on a marathon, you should just remember Pheidippides. This isn't necessarily like biblical wisdom. This is just me sharing my opinion right now, okay? Um, but the point was, that's the idea of a messenger. And like when you would see that messenger coming from a long way off, like people would get excited. Like the anticipation would grow. Good news is coming. Is it good news? Is it bad news? It's, it's, it's coming towards us. And so this idea that we see here in Nahum 1.15 of this, the, somebody's feet running on the mountains, bringing good news, that, that idea we see throughout the scripture. And the idea is that the good news, if you've got good news, the good news is to be shared. Let's get that down for point number two here. The good news is to be shared. That's the point of good news. Now, the bad news, well, we've got to deal with that. And that's tough. People don't like to talk about it. Sinners will not be spared. But the good news is to be shared. And so turn with me back to Isaiah. And let's go kind of where we left off. Isaiah chapter 40. Because after this historical interlude in the book of Isaiah, we start to share some good news. Isaiah has been a lot of judgment, just like Nahum. But what you'll notice when you start studying the prophets or the minor prophets, yeah, there's bad news of judgment, but the bad news always leaves way to the good news of salvation. And here in Isaiah 40, we have an example of the messenger getting up on the hills trying to spread the good word to everybody. And it says here in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So it's like somebody's going to start speaking to the people, crying out to the people, comfort, comfort, okay? Now, here's something that's really interesting is that the word here in Hebrew for comfort is very similar to the name Nahum. In fact, if you're taking notes, you might want to write that down, that the name Nahum means comfort. Now, you wouldn't have thought that the first 14 verses of Nahum, right? But then you realize that part of the reason Nahum is writing to tell Nineveh that they're going to be judged is because it's good news to the people of Judah that they're not going to be invaded by Assyria. And so it's actually comforting to God's people that these people who were taunting God and not acknowledging God are going to be judged. And so it's actually a comfort that their warfare is ended and their iniquity is pardoned. Now get down to verse 9. Look what it says here in verse 9. Here's this idea of a messenger on the mountains with feet bringing good news. 
Get, go up on a high mountain. Go tell it on the mountain is how we like to sing it come Christmas time. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, you messenger of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift up your voice. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Hey, let's get up on a high place. Let's make it as loud as the volume will go. Let's get it up to maximum volume and let's let people look. Hey, here's God. You got to see him. Look what he's doing. This is the idea. Spread the message. Spread the good news. Everybody needs to see. Look who God is. We got good news. Go to Isaiah 52 and you'll see this same idea here in Isaiah chapter 52. Turn over there with me. Isaiah chapter 52, very appropriate start to this chapter for us here at Great Awakening Week. Isaiah 52 verse 1, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Very similar to what it said in Nam. Hey, good news, rejoice, celebrate, because those uncircumcised, those worthless, the people who worship false gods, they're not going to come and take you over and invade you anymore. They're not going to come into your city anymore. So everybody wake up, everybody get excited, get, it, get dressed up, we're going to celebrate. Now look down at verse 7 here in Isaiah 52, verse 7. Here, here's something that sounds very similar to Nahum 1.15. It says, how beautiful upon the mountains. Can you see it? Are you on the wall? Can you see the little cloud of dust being kicked up by that messenger that's running there on the mountains? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Man, look at that guy go. He's coming right towards us. He publishes peace. He brings good news of happiness. He publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. Hey, I got good news. You have won. Your God is victorious. Your God reigns over all the other nations. Look at that guy running. When you see him running, when the messenger's coming and not the other army to come and wipe you out, but it's a messenger bringing good news. Oh, everybody rejoice. Everybody get ready. Here comes the good news. And look, here's us on the watchman. We can, we can see him running towards us. And we're the voice of your watchman. They lift up their voice. They sing for joy. They see the beautiful sign of that, that feet kicking up dust. Coming towards them with good news. And they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. So break forth together into singing. We got such good news going on. That we can see our God, that our God reigns, that we got to sing. We got to get dressed up. We got to spread the word. Hey, the watchmen are spreading it to the rest of the city. Good news. We've won the victory. Now, go to Romans chapter 10, and you'll see how this applies. This idea of spreading the good news applies directly to us as New Testament Christians here today in America. Romans chapter 10 and uh, we'll kind of go through this backwards here. So we'll start where it refers to Nahum 1.15 and Isaiah chapter 40 and Isaiah 52 verse 7. Look what it says here in Romans 10 verse 15. How are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? Here's a quote now from Isaiah 52.7. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So we got this idea that when somebody brings good news, that messenger, man, when I see them running with the good news, it's like their feet are beautiful. Now, I don't really think that feet are necessarily beautiful when I look at them, but we're bringing such a good message. It's like this person's got beautiful feet. That's the idea. Now, here's how we got there. Look at verse 14. Go back a verse. 
This is now referring to us needing to see an awakening, a revival in America. How then will they call on him and whom they have not believed? We need people to believe in Jesus. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? People need to hear the gospel message. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? So if we want to see people in America believe in Jesus Christ, then they've got to hear the gospel. And how are they going to hear the gospel if nobody preaches it to them? And how are we going to go out preaching if nobody sends us out to go preaching? Where is the beautiful feet going to come from if nobody's sending them out with the good news? That's the idea. And then it says in verse 13, even to build up before this, here's the excitement. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation, the good news, is not just for church people. The good news is for all people. Anybody who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Anybody want to say amen to that right now? Anybody can be saved. So who's going to go tell them? So they'll believe in Jesus. Who's going to go preach to them? So they can hear the good news. We need some beautiful feet running out with the good news. Spreading it. And what is the content of this good news that's going to call, make people want to call on Jesus to be saved? We'll go back to uh, chapter 8. I mean verse 8 of chapter 10. It says, but what does it say? That this word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Okay, so here it is. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, here's the gospel. Who is Jesus and what did he do? If you believe it and confess it, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And there's no distinction whether you're a Jew or a Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. He bestows his riches of salvation on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We got a massive problem in America. Our country is turning away from God, but any single person that's in America that's turned away from God, if they were to call on the name of the Lord, if they were to confess that Jesus is Lord, if they were to believe in their heart that he died for their sin and rose again, they could be saved right now. And the only thing that's keeping them from being saved is they've got to hear it. And who's going to go tell them? Who today still has feet that are beautiful because they run with the good news of Jesus Christ. The reason America has turned away from God is we have less messengers of the good news. It's that straightforward. And if we're going to see America turn back to God, we're going to need a whole street team, a whole army, a whole group of messengers running on the hills, getting up to a high place, lifting up their voice and saying to America, behold your God, our God reigns. Let me tell you what Jesus did. He's the Lord. He died, but he rose again. And now he offers you life forevermore. If you will call on his name, you will be saved. Who's going to spread that message? Who's going to get out there? Now, the word here, if you look at verse 15, where it quotes Isaiah 52, 7, it says, for those who preach the good news, all right? Let's just talk about the Greek here for a second. Just bear with me here. We're going to get into the, the Greek language. It's this word that I love. 
And I'm not sure everybody understands it, so there's a disconnect when we talk. This is the Greek word. You pronounce this euangelizo, okay? Euangelizo. It has the sound kind of where you see those two gammas next to each other. That when there's two gammas next to each other, the first one has like an N sound in English. So the word angel is kind of in the, in the middle of euangelizo angel in the middle, and then you, the prefix there, E-E-U is how it looks to us, um, that means good. So it's a good angel. It's a good, it's a good message that's going out. That, when you, that's the word for preach the good news. Okay? So when it says here in English, preach the good news, everybody see that there in verse 15? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Some people are going to say, well, well, that's for you, pastor. You must have beautiful feet because I ain't no preacher. That's what some people are going to think. Okay? That, that's not really the idea. I'm not talking about standing up and, and preaching a sermon in front, of a, in front of the crowd. I'm just talking about anybody who's got the message of good news and they're sharing it. That's the idea here, okay? Um, and, and so if we were to translate this, we would translate it to preach the good news like we did here or to bring the good news. You could even say if that helps you not, not feel like you can't do it because you're not a preacher, all right? Um, you just bring the good news. You share the good news. Now, if we transliterate it, if we just take that Greek word and we throw it into English, it's the word evangelism, okay? So when we say evangelism, and that's, I, I'm really excited about evangelism. I think that everything that happens at church should, should not stay at church. It should spread to all over Huntington Beach and Garden Grove and Fountain Valley and Westminster. I think everybody, everything we learn here should just be on repeat and retweet and just get it out there to as many people as we possibly can. That's the idea. And so I talk about evangelism, the sharing of the good news. Well, really all we're doing when we say evangelism is we're just taking that Greek word and we're saying it in English. And so when you hear evangelism, you should think beautiful feet with a good message. Somebody running to share some good news with somebody else. That's all we mean by evangelism. Okay, now let's get into the kind of the root word here, the, the angel word. Let's throw up our next Greek word. Like, for example, in Luke 2.10, what would be a passage you could write down. You know that passage because the angel shows up and he says, this is a Christmas verse now, right? Luke 2.10, I bring you good tidings of what? What does he bring? Good tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. And what's the good news that I'm here to share? There's been born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So that's the word, angelos, angelos, okay? Angel. Okay, when we see an angel in, in English, we just think of some heavenly spiritual being. In the Greek, it doesn't emphasize the fact that they're a heavenly or spiritual being. It emphasizes that they have a message that they're bringing, okay? So, so we would really see angels, if we wanted to translate it, we would translate this as a messenger, as one sent to proclaim, Okay? And then if we were to transliterate it, if we were just to take that word and bring it into English, that's where we get idea of angel. But the emphasis of, on angels is that they brought good news, that they were messengers, okay? All you have to do to bring good news, to preach good news, to do the work of evangelism is you have to repeat good news that you heard and share it with somebody else. It requires you to do no original thinking in the process. Does that make sense to everybody right now? Okay. If, if, you, if, we, if you're a general in the army and you look at Pheidippides and you say, Nenny K. Common, and you send him off to go tell everybody in Athens that we've just won the victory, you don't want Pheidippides coming up with creative ways to say your message along the way, all right? 
You want Philippides to just say what you said to the people that you're giving the message to. If we're going to be Philippides and we're going to take the good news that Jesus is Lord, that he still reigns, that he died for your sin and rose again, it's not a complicated message to deliver. We just got to take what we've heard and we've got to say it to other people. Anybody in this room can do this if you want to. Anybody can do evangelism. You just have to believe that it's good, and you just have to want to share it. We have made this evangelism thing way too complicated. You think you have to read books, and you have to know what the Mormons say, and what the Jehovah's Witnesses say, and you have to know what, what all these different groups say, and then what the atheists say, and then what the Buddhists say. And if you don't know that, you shouldn't talk to anybody. That's how we think about it. That's not true. Everybody, no matter what they believe, they need to believe in Jesus Christ. And if you know that Jesus is Lord, if you know that he died, if you know that he rose again, you know what everybody else needs to know, and you just need to start sharing it. Amen. It's that simple. It's not rocket science, all right? Anybody in this room could be a bold evangelist. And here's a great way you can do it. Just share what Jesus does in your life. Just share what you're learning about Jesus. Just share how you were going the wrong way and you weren't acknowledging God in your life and then you got turned around and now you're following Jesus Christ and, and it's amazing to know what it means to be saved and to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Just tell people your own story and put the gospel in it and share it like it's good news you've got to pass on. Anybody here can do the work of evangelism. In fact, I want to ask you, can you even be a Christian and not evangelize? Does that even make sense? That there would be people who know the secret. The whole world is headed towards hell. Like Jonathan Edwards said, in sinners in the hands of an angry God, we're like a spider in God's hand, and there's the fire down below. And at any moment, God could just let us fall into the fire. Like the whole world is, it should be afraid of the judgment that is to come, and you're telling me that God saved you from that judgment. Like you were headed towards eternal torment and misery, but God turned you around, gave you a new life in Jesus Christ. Like you have the secret to everybody else's salvation and you want to keep it to yourself? Like how does that even make sense to us? When did it become normal for people who go to church and call themselves Christians in America to keep their faith private and never publicly share that they're a Christian with other people? I'll tell you when it became normal, when we turned away from God and went down the wrong track. The, a Christian who doesn't tell other people about Christ is a contradiction in terms and probably not a Christian at all. Did I, was that, I say that clear enough? Oh, I've been a Christian for 10 years. Great. How many people have you led to the Lord? How many people have you shared the good news with? Nobody. Mm. Hard for me to believe. In fact, not even hard for me to believe. Jesus flat out says, not true. Go to Matthew chapter 10 with me. Go to Matthew chapter 10. And look at what he says here. I mean, it, it, it seemed to me that if Jesus, when Jesus called his disciples, he said, follow me and I will what? Anybody know what he said? Follow me and I will... We didn't say that very confidently there. He's going to make us fishers of men. Like a part of the package of you following Jesus was that Jesus would make you someone who could go out and reach more souls with the gospel. Like Jesus was going to make disciples who then 
made disciples. Today, we think discipleship is about my personal growth in the Lord. Well, yes, as I'm taught the commands of the Lord, as I obey them, I definitely grow. That's a part of discipleship. But the point of discipleship is to pass it on to a next generation of disciples. So here in Matthew, this is the gospel of Matthew. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. That's chapter 9, verse 9. This is the guy who wrote the book, the gospel that we're now reading. This is him telling the story of how he got called from being a tax collector to a disciple of Jesus. Chapter 10, he gets named as one of the 12 disciples. You can see it there in verse 3. And chapter 10, verse Verse 5, it says, these 12 Jesus sent out. So at least the way that Matthew writes it, at least the way that it may be felt to him and his own personal experience, is one day Jesus was calling him, and the next chapter, Jesus was sending him out. There wasn't like this long time in between where he went to seminary or he read all these books or he figured out all this stuff. It was like, hey, you, follow me. Hey, you, go tell those people. That's how it seemed. And here we have instructions of how Jesus sent out the disciples two by two into every town in, in Judah that he was going to go into. And look what he says in verse 32. Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. Here's what Jesus says. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now what does that verse mean? Let's really think about those verses. This is something that Jesus wanted to say to his disciples as he was sending them out. And it seems like a pretty straightforward principle. If you acknowledge me before men, I'm going to acknowledge you before my Father. If you deny me before men, I'm going to deny you before my Father. Now, we've already learned about judgment that no one can stand before the indignation of God. No one can stand before God in the heat of his anger. On the day of judgment, no one is going to be defending themselves. No one is going to speak back to God. No one's going to be able to say, well, the reason I I sin like this was because and give excuses or explain away their sin. No, we're all going to be shut up in the presence of God. And nobody's going to answer him. But hopefully Jesus Christ will defend you. He will be your advocate. He will say that he has died for your sins and you have been declared righteous by his blood. And Jesus is saying, hey, on the day of judgment, here's the kind of person I'm standing up for, the one who acknowledges me. On the, kind of, on the day of judgment, here's the kind of person I'm not standing up for, the one who denies me. He's making, whether we acknowledge him before men, whether we speak up in Jesus' name in front of our family members, co-workers, neighbors, he's saying that's an evidence of the people who are really saved by me. People who are really my people, they're going to acknowledge me before men. People who are not really my people, well, you can kind of tell they're not really my people because they deny me. There's those opportunities that they have to share their faith, to speak up, to represent, and they just continually, regularly pass, let those opportunities pass by to, the, to where the point where it is, honestly, they're not really trying to tell anybody about Jesus in their life, but they come to church all the time and celebrate the good news all the time, but they don't want to share the good news with anyone else contradiction doesn't make sense. I mean, Jesus is saying in this passage that acknowledging him before men is an evidence that you are one of his people and he has saved you. 
So I don't know where it became normal in the church today, where it became commonplace for people to claim to be Christians at church and then to go out in the world and say nothing about Jesus Christ. But that should seem to you like a way it's not supposed to be. And if you would describe yourself as a Christian and that's been you, where you don't really tell other people, you don't really have beautiful feet running on the mountains to get up to a high place with a loud voice to tell as many people as possible the good news that Jesus is Lord, he still reigns and he died for them and rose again. If you're not doing that, you need to rethink, why not? Why am I not telling everybody the good news. Why am I not acknowledging God? That's what America needs so desperately. We've learned the last couple of nights that we need to acknowledge God in our nation again. Like even non-Christians were doing like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. We need to say that God is the one who has made America what it is. And if we're ever going to be great, it's because God is the one who's going to make us great. Why don't we do that? Why don't we do that more? Why do we have ugly feet in the church today? You know, one of the reasons the Great Awakening happened in the American colonies was because of this guy, George Whitfield. And George Whitfield was kind of a crazy man, if, if, if we can just put it like that. He would go preach, and, uh, and people didn't want him preaching in the church because he was always ripping on church people. In fact, he was known to say things like pastors weren't even saved. And so you can imagine a lot of pastors didn't invite him to come and speak at their churches, right? Because he was exposing hypocrisy within the church. And so he started doing something in London. He started preaching, not in a church, but out in the open air. And thousands of people started thronging. Apparently he had this very strong, very melodious, very powerful voice. And so you would have thousands of people come around and there would be just a hush over the crowd. Just you could hear a pin drop and there's one man like way over there shouting and everybody's listening. Everybody's hanging on every word of what George Whitfield says. And one of the things that really caused the great awakening to happen that God used to spread a revival in our nation was this guy George Whitfield in 1739. He came over to the American colonies. And he was interested in starting an orphanage in Georgia. But while he was here, he began to go around and he began to preach. And the hype followed him all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. And everybody wanted to hear this guy preach. And I shared uh, about the city of Boston. Thousands of people coming out to hear him. And, and I read different reports uh, of, the, of the numbers of how many people it was, but more people showed up to hear uh, George Whitfield preach in the city of Boston than people who lived in the city of Boston. So literally, the whole town, and this was like one of our big colonial cities, the whole town, and then some, people coming from towns around are going out to hear this guy preach. And I have an account of a guy who was a farmer, and, when, and he heard one day that George Whitfield was coming to preach near him. And here's what this guy wrote. Now it pleased God to send Mr. Whitfield into this land. And my hearing of his preaching at Philadelphia, like one of the old apostles, and many thousands flocking to hear him preach the gospel, and great numbers were converted to Christ. And I felt the Spirit of God drawing me by conviction. And I longed to see and hear him, and I wished he would come this way. And one morning, all of a sudden, about 8 or 9 o'clock, there came a messenger and said, Mr. Whitfield preached at Hartford and Wethersfield yesterday, and he's to preach at Middletown this morning, October 23rd, 1740. At 10 o'clock, 
I was in my field at work and I dropped my tool that I had in my hand and I ran home and I ran through the house and I bade my wife get ready to go and hear Mr. Whitfield preach at Middletown and I ran to my pasture for my horse with all my might fearing that I should be too late to hear him and I brought my horse home and soon mounted and I took my wife up and went forward as fast as I thought the horse could bear and when my horse began to be out of breath I would get down and I would put my wife on the saddle and bid her ride as fast as she could and not stop or slack for me except I bade her and I would run until I was almost out of breath and then I would mount my horse again and I did so several times to favor my horse we improved every moment every moment to get along as if we were fleeing for our lives all this while fearing we should be too late to hear the sermon for we had 12 miles to ride double in little more than an hour and on high land, I saw before me a cloud of fog rising. And I heard a noise, something like a low rumbling thunder. And I found it was the rumbling of horses' feet coming down the road. And this cloud was a cloud of dust made by the horses' feet. And I could see men and horses slipping along in the cloud like shadows. And when I came near, it was like a steady stream of horses and their riders. And every horse seemed to go with all his might to carry his rider to hear the news from heaven for the saving of their souls. It made me tremble to see the sight. And we went down into the stream. And I heard no man speak a word all the way, three miles, but everyone pressing forward in great haste. And when we got down to the old meeting house, there was a great multitude. It was said to be three or four thousand of people assembled together. And we got out from our horses and shook off the dust. And I turned and I looked towards the great river. And I saw the ferry boats running swift forward and backward, bringing over loads of people. And the land along all the 12 miles, I did not see any man at work in his field. All seemed to be gone. And when I see Mr. Whitfield come upon the scaffold. He looked almost angelical before some thousands of people and with a bold, undaunted countenance and my hearing how God was with him everywhere as he came along about it, solemnized in my mind and put me in a trembling fear before he began to preach. For he looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God and a sweet, solemn solemnity sat upon his brow. And my hearing him preach gave my heart a wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. And the man goes on to say that that was the day he stopped trusting in his good works and his own prayers, and that was the day he trusted in the righteousness of Jesus Christ for his salvation. How will they know if no one preaches to them? How will they hear if there's no beautiful feet who are running with the message? You want to see a revival in America? Well, then you need to be the Lord's messenger, and you need to carry his good news all across this land. Anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Man, and they're just waiting right now. For somebody to tell them. There's people who will be saved out there and they just need to hear the good news. And I wonder who will leave this place and be the beautiful feet that will bring to them 
the good news that our God still reigns. Jesus is still Lord, even of America. He died for your sin. He rose again. It really is that simple and straightforward, the good news. But I know we have people here tonight who still don't believe that you could do it that you could lead someone to salvation, that you could invite someone to church, that you could share something with somebody else and they would get it. We'll go back to Isaiah chapter 40 where we started a little bit, where it said we need to get up on a high mountain and we need to lift up our voice and we need to say to America, behold our God. Hey, he's still here. We need to acknowledge him. You need to see him. Look at him. See, this isn't about you. This isn't about the messenger. It's about the message, and specifically, it's about the God who sent the message. And God makes it very clear that we need to go and make disciples of all nations. And here's the confidence that you and I can have to make disciples. Here in Huntington Beach in America in 2016, Jesus said, even at the end of the age, I will be, what did he say? With you. Man, let me just ask you this, my friends. Let me just ask you this. If I told you, that in the parking lot of Boeing, Jesus Christ was going to be there. And he was going to preach the good news. Would you round up a crowd and run on over to Boeing parking lot? I wouldn't be offended if you just bolted and ran down the street. All right? Would you want to go hear Jesus? It says Jesus makes it so clear when he sent us out to make disciples. He made it very clear that I'm going to go with you. When you speak the good news of Jesus, it is people hearing Jesus. That's what it says. In Isaiah 40, we need to realize that God is with us, and, and we need to realize who God is and how he can use us no matter who we are. Look at this. Look what it says. Here's the God we need to behold. Maybe you and I need to look at God a little bit tonight to be encouraged to share the message. It says, behold, look at this. The Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. I mean, do we believe that? Do we believe that God's hand is holding people above hell and he can let them go at any time? And that God's hand is a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and he reaches down and snatches people out of the fire and saves them? Look at his mighty arm that rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense, his judgment before him. Now he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Look at the tenderness that God can treat people with. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? I mean, let's just think about planet earth real quick. When you've seen that satellite photo of planet Earth from outer space, what color is our planet from outer space? You guys tell me, what color? And here's God. He's got this hand that's holding people above hell. He's got this hand that can reach down and grab people and save them. And he can take all the oceans of the world, all the lakes of the world, all the rivers of the world, all the waters of the earth, and he can put them here in the little hollow of his hand like you and I do when we take a, take a sip of water maybe and we just have that little spot and we take that little drink. That's all the waters of the earth right there in the Lord's hand. Is his arm mighty enough for you? Is he strong enough to save? Could that God, could that mighty and awesome God even use somebody like you to spread the good news? Is his hand that powerful? See, we need to elevate your view of God. Let's get that for our first sub-point under how you are going to have the strength to share the good news, how you're going to become the beautiful feet messenger. Well, you need to elevate your view of God. 
See, when you say that you can't share the good news, what you're really saying is God can't share the good news through you, and you're dissing God. You're underestimating the power of God to work through his people. And so we need to heighten our view of God. We need to see how big his hand is, that he can put the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. Surely he can reach down and save. Surely he can even use you. Now jump down to verse 21. I mean, Isaiah 40 would be great for you to read on a regular basis. But look at verse 21. It says, do you not know? We're trying to get a glimpse of God here tonight. We're trying to see who is the one who's sending us out with the good news. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like, shout it out, its inhabitants are like what? Oh, I love that part so much. Man, if I'm trash talking, I love to call people grasshoppers. Does anybody else ever enjoy this? I just think of like somebody like Mr. Miyagi looking at someone and saying they're a grasshopper. You know what I mean? And it just brings me joy to think about that. Like this is great trash talk right here. What is the number one reason that people do not evangelize? Because we are afraid of who? What? Men. People. What are they going to think about me? What are they going to do about me? What are they going to say about me? I mean, here in America so far, they haven't been beating us up that much. They haven't been throwing us in prison that much. They haven't been beheading us. I mean, we've got it pretty easy here in America. All they really do is mock us and call us bad names. They're not coming after us, not yet anyways. And yet we're so afraid of grasshoppers. He sits above the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants of the earth to him are like grasshoppers. Now, my kids, they love to play in the backyard. And I've got a four-year-old son named Jack. And I think he's pretty cute, as most parents think their kids are pretty cute. And I like this kid. And he goes out in the back one day, and he just gives the most blood-curdling scream. And I am convinced that he is near death based on that scream. And I run with all of my fatherly love out. I, I remember to open the screen, and I run into the backyard to save my son. And he is frozen. He is petrified with fear. He literally, he gives that one scream and then he can't move. And his eyes are this big. And he's just there looking. And what is he looking at? What has terrified him to his core? A grasshopper. And I think, kid, this is not how we're going to pass down the Blakey name to the next generation. This thing doesn't even know you're there, buddy. Just keep playing. How foolish to be afraid. These are one of the nice bugs, man. Don't be afraid of the grasshoppers. I think he saw a bug's life one time and it was over, you know? <laughs> oh, how foolish we must look to the Lord when there is somebody that we are afraid of and we freeze and we don't speak the good news. And we don't say, behold our God, he reigns, Jesus is Lord, we need to acknowledge him here in America. We freeze and we scream and we act like we can't even move because there's a grasshopper in front of us. How embarrassing it is for us who has the almighty God in his mighty hand ready to save and he is with us and we're afraid of little grasshoppers. We should be ashamed of ourselves. We're acting like little kids. 
We should not be afraid of what men are going to think. Jesus made it very clear in Matthew 10, 28, that you have a choice. You can fear God or you can fear men. And men might kill your body, but God can kill your body and destroy your soul in hell. So choose wisely who you're going to fear. Second little dash, you need to eliminate your fear of man. Okay? And let me just tell you, there's a big difference between being nervous and being afraid. I'm nervous every single time I step up here to preach. I get nervous every single time. I, every time I go out evangelizing, every time I walk up to somebody knowing we're going to talk about sin and repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, I get nervous every single time I go to talk to somebody. There is a big difference between being nervous. You can feel uncomfortable and nervous, but you keep doing it. Fear is when you stop doing it. Fear is when you freeze up. Fear is when you let the opportunity pass you by and the next time you don't even try to bring it up again because you're afraid. I'm not talking about being nervous. I'm not saying we're going to feel always confident as we go out there. No, we might be shaking in our boots, but we keep going out there. It's a big difference. You can be nervous. You can be uncomfortable, but it is not acceptable for God's people to fear anyone but God. Skip on down to the end of the chapter, verse 28. Isaiah 40, verse 28. It says, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord, I love this part, the Lord is the everlasting God. He is the creator. That's what we need to get back to. In our founding document, the Declaration of Independence, there it is, the creator of the ends of the earth. That's us all the way over here on the end of the earth in America. Now, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In fact, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Now, even youths shall faint and be weary. Even young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I mean, the Lord has energy. The Lord has strength. I mean, we've been going five days nonstop here at Compass HP. I'm getting a little bit tired. Anybody else getting a little bit tired, right? But let me just tell you, the Lord has done great work this week. He's brought us together in fellowship, in worship. He's brought new people to the church. We have two people who professed faith this week at the church. Let me just tell you that all that we've done here at the church did not wear God out one bit. If you could see how charged up the Lord is, he is always at 100, and he's not even plugged into the wall, my friends. I mean, he is the everlasting God. We need to learn this secret about the Lord, that when we get tired, when we get weary, when we go out and we are fired up and we tell two or three people about Jesus Christ and they all reject us and they're not interested and they say no thanks, maybe they even come on strong and persecute us and we start to feel weary and tired. Like it's hard to go out there into the world and get beaten down all the time with the good news. It's hard to always be wanting to tell people about Jesus. And really what the world, what America wants to tell you is, hey, if you guys want to believe in Jesus, I guess that's okay. They don't really think it's okay at all, but they're going to act like it's okay because of this fake idea of tolerance. If you want to do that at your church, it's fine, but you better not talk about it, think about it, or say anything about it any place other than that. Like the whole America, like if you just can be a hypocrite Christian, we'll tolerate you. That's basically where they're at. Like just keep it in your church and we'll be fine. That's what America thinks. There should be no religion and no God, no talk about Jesus out in the public sphere. That's America's new position. Keep it in the church and maybe you can do it there. We're still thinking about that. That's where America's at. 
They don't want it. And so you can get weary. You can get tired. It can be hard to keep going with the good news. And when you feel weary and tired, is it acceptable to turn down the volume on speaking about Jesus? Is it acceptable to say, you know, for a few days now, I'm just not going to share the good news with everybody. I'm just going to keep it to myself. No, there is, there is wind beneath your wings is the idea here. No, there's a, there's a level of energy. There's a level of strength that you can tap into because it's not you doing it. It's the Lord doing it through you. Trust me, if you share the good news and anybody gets saved, one thing that will become apparent to you pretty quickly is you didn't make that happen. You didn't say anything amazing enough that their entire life radically changes for the rest of their life. You didn't do it. I've had the privilege of having some of those conversations with people. I had a conversation with somebody like that last night. To be honest, I was wiped out. I was tired. I was done, right? Main thing I did in that conversation is I sat there like this and I listened to what the person had to say. Just had my listening face on. <laughs> Just smiled. And the person kept saying, I don't know what I'm talking about. And I was like, actually, you're making great sense. Keep going. That's, that's literally what I did. You want to, here's the secret to being a pastor. Listen. Listen. You know, I think you're on the right track. And all of a sudden, the person gets saved right in front of your eyes. You're going to know very clearly, I didn't do this. I'm just a messenger. I'm just here. I might as well fall over and die. My job is done. I'm just Philippides here. It's the victory that the Lord is working. It's the salvation that the Lord is bringing. And he's not tired of saving people. He hasn't gotten worn out at all. In fact, the whole reason he's not judging people yet is he wants to save more people on our watch, in our day, at our time. So there's energy. Energize in the Lord. Let's get that down for the third dash. Energize in the Lord. Man, you're feeling weary, feeling wore down? Come read Isaiah 40. Come behold God. Come think about the everlasting God. Think about his energy and strength and keep pouring yourself out and watch how the Lord will keep filling you up. It's amazing. So do we have good news for America? Well, here's, we've got two points tonight. The bad news is the sinners will not be spared. There is going to be judgment for people who continue in sin. The good news is to be shared. And let me, let's just put those two points together. The sinners will not be sh spared unless the good news is shared. The only way that they can believe in Jesus and be saved is if they hear someone preaching to them, someone bringing them the good news. So who are you? going to bring the good news to, to see revival spread. If revival is going to spread, if an awakening is going to happen, if many, many people are going to be saved, it's going to require all of us to be messengers with beautiful feet. And here's just, let me end with this, okay? Let me end with this. If you're the kind of person that can blend in here at church, where we, we're, we're shining the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light of the world, and then he says, we are the light of the world, and we're trying to be the light here at church. If you can blend in here with the light, and then you go out and you're at work, and then you go out and you're with your family at a gathering, and then you go out in your neighborhood, and you can blend in with the darkness. So you can kind of, your light switch, you can kind of turn it on and off. See, you're at church, oh, you shine in the light, right? You go out into the world, oh, yeah, man, I watched that TV show. Oh, yeah, I was thinking about that. Oh, yeah, and you're just rolling with the world. Light switch on, light switch off. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's see what it says about that here in Ephesians chapter 5. Is that a Christian person 
who's light in certain contexts and darkness in certain contexts, kind of like a chameleon, kind of like a Christian in camouflage, blending in with their environment. Look what it says here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. It says, let no one deceive you. And many people who call themselves Christians are deceived. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things... The kinds of sins that people joke about and talk about. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The judgment is coming. Don't be deceived. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part, nothing, in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Shine the light on them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Man, what a warning to anybody here who thinks, well, I'll be light at church, and then I'll fit in over here with the world. No, it says you're supposed to be light everywhere you go. You got your, Once Jesus ha has shined his light in you, you become the light of the world. You never turn that switch back off. You never go back to the darkness. You are now light no matter where you go. You shine it here at church. You shine it out there in the world. You take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, and you will be one of the lights shining, exposing the darkness. And Christ will shine through you and he will wake sleepers up and they will rise from the dead. If you pray to be beautiful feet, God will use you to share the good news. The only way there's going to be good news for America is if we are the ones who go and share it. There will be no revival. There will be no awakening if church doesn't start happening outside of church. And we got to take the good news to the streets. God, we come to you right now and we thank you so much for the good news that we could look at tonight. That the judgment news is, is bad and it's terrible. But how good it must have been when the runner came on the hills to Jerusalem and they heard that good news that Assyria was going to be destroyed. That Nineveh was going to come to a complete end. And the watchmen, they must have gathered together and sung for joy. And they must have got up on a high mountain and lifted up their voice and said, Behold our God. Our God reigns. God, let us be your beautiful feet here in Huntington Beach. God, let us be people that cannot stop talking about the light of Jesus Christ. And we will shine it in the dark. We will expose the works of darkness. We will never back down from bringing the good news of Jesus Christ. God, we want to see you do a great work. We want to see you awaken many souls. We want to see you turn our nation back to a nation that acknowledges you. And God, we pray that we would be people who acknowledge you before men, that we would not fear them that they would be grasshoppers in our eyes compared to our elevated, high and exalted view of you, God. Give us the energy. Give us the strength. Let the greatest days of our witness, of our good news, of our evangelism be ahead of us, God, and save many souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>